I remember saying this to my husband because I like, you know, I told him about the offer and I said, let me just take it. I was like, I was like, so you think their negotiation strategy is to start with their absolute best, highest final offer? Like you think that's their strategy? Cause that seems pretty unlikely. That seems pretty unlikely to me. And also if that is like, let's find out, you know what I mean? Because there's just, this is where, like, this is where having that bravado is so important because this is where people get really intimidated and really nervous. And I just thought like, it's very rare that you lose the initial offer, right? Like you really have to be a jerk to lose the initial offer. Even if you try to negotiate and you're unsuccessful, like, you know, then you just, well, never mind. I guess I'll just take that first thing you sent me. I'm like, that's all good. So, you know, and if that is truly their best and final, then they'll just tell you that, you know, you try to go to them and they'll just come back and they'll say, actually, you know, we don't negotiate at all. That's it. That's it. Take it or leave it. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode here on Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Today on the show, John Warlow is joined by Laura Roeder, who in 2021 sold her company, Meet Edgar, to SureSwift Capital. But before we get there, during today's interview, Laura references an article that she wrote on her personal blog, which describes in detail the process she went through in exiting her company, Meet Edgar. And within that article, there's a fantastic list that she's compiled of micro private equity firms that you probably will find super valuable. So I will share that link along with some of the more technical terms that are going to be used in today's interview over the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so let me tell you about today's guest, Laura Roder, who, as I mentioned, sold her company Meet Edgar, which was a social media planning tool and scheduler back in 2021. Now, during today's interview, I want you to be able to look for a technique that she used to create a competitive marketplace for her company and also some of the negotiation tactics she used to get the highest multiple possible for her company. Here to share the full story with John Warlow is Laura Roeder. Enjoy. Laura Roeder, welcome to Build Cell Radio. Thank you. I'm a loyal fan of the show, so it's pretty <laughs> exciting for me to be a guest today. Well, it's great to have you. Meet Edgar. What a quirky name for a company. What on earth did you guys do? Uh, Meet Edgar, yeah, you would have no idea from the name. Uh, Meet Edgar is a social media scheduling tool. So it's a software SaaS company for small businesses to schedule their social media updates on uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, that kind of thing. So I've I've used, I don't use them anymore, but we used to use something called Hootsuite. Mm -hmm. And ha yeah. would it be similar to something like yes. that? Like how would it be, let's say, how would it be different than something like Hootsuite? Yeah, so Hootsuite um, was one of our main competitors. To be clear, I'm gonna talk in the past tense a lot because I'm done with the company, but the company is still very much alive and well. So I don't want people, the, you know, to get the, the wrong impression. That's helpful, past okay, tense. great. <laughs> um, so Meet Edgar is different from other tools because um, we are a library of evergreen content that can be repurposed. So if you're a business, especially some sort of um, like thought leader business, service business, something like that, and your content, like your blog posts tend to be evergreen content or actually podcasters are a great use case for us. Um, what a lot of podcasters do 
is they put the latest episode on social media um, and then never mention it again for the rest of time, even though their whole library would probably be good for years to come. So with Edgar, you put in all of your updates, Edgar cycles through them for you to make sure that that evergreen content is, is always on social media. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. It is kind of like, well, duh, of course we should have this product because you're right. Once you create an evergreen piece of content, it's like, why on earth aren't we just kind of repurposing it? The, right. you know, the half-life of a tweet is like whatever, 12 seconds. So it's right. probably good to kind of continue. Were there other competitors that did something similar or were you guys in a greenfield? Uh, so when we launched, ocean. it was a totally new idea. So yeah, we launched mm. in 2014 and it was a totally new way um, to look at social media scheduling. Um, we did have our copycats over the years. So and now Meet Edgar isn't the only one with that kind of functionality. Um, but I do still use it. I think I think it's still the best one with that, that functionality. I'm going to actually check it out. MeetEdgar.com, yeah. I'm guessing. Or yep. what's the yeah. URL? MeetEdgar.com. Yep. Uh, fantastic. So how did you get the money to start the business? Because software businesses are great, but they usually cost a lot to start. Yes. So uh, I'm not a developer, um, but I married a developer. It was Perfect. my life hack <laughs> <laughs> for starting a software business. So uh, meet Edgar was bootstrapped. I think the term self-funded is kind of a more accurate way to put it because I was running another business before Meet Edgar. I was actually running an online course business about social media marketing. So I had the audience already. I had the topic already. Basically what I was teaching people to do manually, we put in the software, which is also why it was an innovative idea. We were teaching hmm. people to do this process to recycle their content on social media. Um, Meet Edgar, created software that, that does it for you automatically. So yeah, so I started the company with my husband, Chris. I'm the business marketing side. He's the, the dev side. So we put money into it um, from previous, you know, the profits How from previous businesses. How much do you think businesses. you kicked in? Like, I actually figured it out later. Yeah, I figured, figured it out later out. about 200K, um, which we didn't Gosh. track at the time, which was a huge mistake. It could have gone really badly. Luckily, it, it everything went okay. Why do you consider that a mistake today? Because I've seen so many times when people fund the next business with a business and it and don't track how much money they're putting in, um, and it just can become such a money pit. Like you don't realize you would never, as an investor, if you had to sit down and keep writing checks, you would never do it. But you just sort of slowly funnel money from one business to the other, which is exactly what we did. Like I said, I didn't figure it out later. And that two hundred k, by the way, that's not accounting for my time or Chris's time, that's just of, you know, other, I mean, of course it's mostly people for a software business are, are your expenses. Um, so I think it was a mistake because it could have gone really badly where we could have just poured a million dollars into a business that wasn't working. Luckily that was not the case. The business worked very well. How did you get from an idea like to a, like the first dozen or two customers? Like what was that process like? So, I mean, I had kind of the easiest time that any business has ever had because I already had created the email list and the audience. So How big was the list? Like how many names? Like 70,000, something like wow. that. So, yeah, pretty pretty substantial. 
So these are all people that have bought your online courses about how to do social media marketing. They're therefore need a scheduling tool. So this is peanut butter and jelly. This is a real. Yeah, I mean, they weren't all customers to be clear, but right, all people who had signed up to learn about the social media marketing courses. Got it. And did you use this sort of like 14 day free trial and then convert or was there a freemium model? Like what was the pricing model you guys chose in the beginning? Um, So actually in the beginning and for the first year or two, we used an invitation model. Um, so we did not have a free trial. I don't know if this would work today because I think some kind of free trial has become kind of table stakes for software. Um, and Edgar did move to that later. But what we actually did is we used an invitation model where you had to put in your email to get an invite to use the software. Um, and that worked really well. I mean, one, it always works great for list building because you know your list is really interested. It's not like, Win, win a free laptop. It's like you're only putting your email in if you're interested in buying the software, right? So, you know, sure. it's, it's a very high quality list. Um, so, yeah, when we launched it, um, it, I mean, actually, what I wish I had done differently is I tried to be too cute and clever with a lot of segmenting of the list. So I thought, okay, we're going to run all these different campaigns. You know, we'll run this campaign to people who've purchased this and this campaign to people who've purchased that and this thing to people who haven't purchased. Um, what I did, I'm running another software startup now, and what I learned and I did differently this time is this time I just did as big of a launch as I could right from the beginning to kind of create excitement, where before I'm like, oh, I'm going to test and segment, but there wasn't really any value. It's not like, oh, we tested these things, and then we found this one, and then we used that. It, it didn't really end up working that way. So um, it, it all worked out fine, and Edgar had just incredible growth for a bootstrap company. We were at a million annual reoccurring revenue 11 months after launch. Um, wow. So it, it was very much like right place, right time, right idea that the market was was ready for. Wow, so many questions on that. Did you follow the Jeff Walker launch idea? No, I had before I, you know, I had done online courses, so I should have, <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, but no, we didn't. Uh, we did, like I said, we did a lot of little like drips and drabs, little little promos. So it's it's interesting because when you look back at the at the charts from our first year, even though we achieved that growth very quickly, it was like every month steady. You know, it's like okay, first month we've got forty people, and then eighty people, and then two hundred people, and then four hundred people. Like every month, it was kind of stair stepped up and up and up. Yeah, yeah. How did you find the churn? Because the, the knock on small business, obviously, is that while they're easier to acquire as customers, they also fall at the back because some go out of, out yes. of business, they change their mind, you know, like if they're not as steady as large enterprise. Like what was your churn rate? Yeah, so our churn, I mean, you know, I think the lowest we ever got it was like between six and seven percent. You know, some months it would be above 10 percent a month. Um, which I think is actually pretty standard for small business. It's interesting in the in the SaaS and the software world, uh, a lot of things will say, oh, you have to have, you know, less than 5% churn a year. Uh, but that's that's for companies that have enterprise deals. I've never seen a small business tool that's gotten anywhere close to that. Mm -hmm. So you were capturing your lifetime value of a customer over, it sounds like, you know, uh, a year or two was sort of lifetime value of a customer over. 
Well, you know, I think that's always kind of a misleading way to look at it because the truth is when you look at most SaaS businesses, you get um, a lot of people that fall off in the first month. A lot of people sign up for the tool, you know, don't actually use it, don't actually set it up, will end up churning in the first month or in the first two to three months. And then it varies a lot over time. So sometimes people will look at the LTV estimates and say, okay, the average is that people stay on for, you know, 14 months or whatever. But that's very much an average where you have some people that stayed on for one month and then you had some people that stayed on for six years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I sold the company when it was seven years old and we absolutely had people that had been there since Hmm. since the beginning. So I think sometimes looking at the average is I mean, it's helpful, but sometimes it kind of gives you the wrong idea because it makes you think, oh, every single customer is leaving after 14 months, um, which is really not the case. Was there a point that you discovered that if the, if we can get them to this month, they'll stay forever? Was there a, like they call no. it the churn curve, but there was mm-hmm. there no, it wasn't like a, a sign that you could. There wasn't because turn. I think what's always hard about small business is they truly do often leave because the business doesn't exist anymore or because they're like just straight up not doing marketing anymore. They're not doing social media marketing anymore. So, I mean, of course we had people leave because they weren't a match for the product in some way, but also a lot of people left because of the state of, of their own business. Um, and I think that's just how it is. And the, I mean, you know, I'm saying small business market, but really our audience was always solopreneur. Most of our customers were like some kind of freelancer, some kind of one person business. So even, even smaller than small business. That's even tougher because I mean the prosumer yeah. market's even, even more apt or prone to churn than than small business. And that's a yeah. That's it's a, a it's it's a high churn market. I mean it's also interesting. I think from a marketing perspective because a lot of the marketing is a lot more like consumer marketing than it is. B you know when you read stuff about B two B marketing. The content is often about having a sales team or, you know, how to get the right people on the call to be to have the decision makers. I mean, we never had um, any kind of sales function. We never did demos. It was all 100 percent self-serve for Edgar. And what was the price point? What is the price point? Um, we launched at $50 a month and then we kept that for a long time. Uh, a few years in, we added a lower price tier. So... The current price point is around 20 a month and 50, or maybe around 30 a month and 50 a month. Got it. And how big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? We got to a few million a year in annual reoccurring revenue. What was the, I get the first million, you had this amazing list, 70,000, and they were all, and many of them, apt to buy this product because mm. they've you know bought a product in the past that of the same sort of nature but I'm curious about getting from this to the second million of MRR because at some point that 70,000 list would have been saturated I'm assuming how did you get to the next million in, in, in recurring revenue I mean it's you know I think with any business people always want that what was this what was the one strategy and you know I think it's it's extremely rare um, that you can name anyone's strategy. I mean, what we did was good old-fashioned content marketing. You know, we we blogged, we <laughs> posted about it on social media. 
Um, we did paid advertising, but honestly, we never we never cracked it over the years. Like the spending would go up and down. We never were sure if it was really working. Uh, we also did. I was. I've been a guest on. Uh, between 200 and 300 podcasts. Oh my gosh. I'm an, ex- <laughs> I'm an extremely experienced You mean you didn't save guest. yourself for me? Come on. <laughs> 200, uh, I, I feel. <laughs> I did a lot of that in, in the first few years. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there was always kind of two ways that, that we got our customers. And this was true in year two, and it was true in year seven. Um, word of mouth. You know, was the yeah. big one. People look for a social media tool and they ask around what are other people using. And then the second one, when you're in an established category like this, um, which social media marketing tools, like people who bought us, they knew they were looking for a tool. It was a type of buying, buying journey where they're like, I need a social media scheduling tool. Which one should I use? And after you're around a certain amount of time, you're on all the lists. You know what I mean? It's like if you Captera Google- right. And you know, blog posts where people are listing top 10 social media scheduling tools. So it's like, you're kind of, you're there, you're present, you're on all the lists, a certain amount of people that are looking are, are going to choose you. And in that way, it was a very, and is like a very predictable, reliable business because we were, we were never like the number one market leader, but we were always in the top 10. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Did you have, as you were growing this, did you have any sense of what it might be worth one day? Um, I mean, I always thought about, I knew that I wanted to sell it because the business that I had done before, I mentioned it was an online course business and it was the typical model that you see in online courses where it was all me. You know, I was the face of it. I was the teacher. I was the person, you know, that you felt like you had a personal connection with when you're buying the course. And I did not want to do that for my next business. I'm like, I need a new model where the business is not just totally reliant on me. So I I did go into it thinking, okay, a great thing about a software business is that I can take time off from it, time away from it, and also that I do have an asset that I can sell at some point. So I never had like I, I didn't I definitely didn't have a clear goal of like I'm gonna sell, you know, after this number of years, or I'm gonna sell for this amount. But I always, I also never thought, oh, I'm this is my forever business that I'm passing on to my children. You know, I thought I'll I'll run it for a while, and then when the time feels right, I'll sell it. And so, with that in mind, you must have started to look at what SaaS companies were trading at. Did you get a sense of multiples that SaaS companies I, were getting in the? I always found that really difficult, and even. At the end, when I sold my business and I had to get serious about figuring that out, I found it really hard to figure out um, because when you hear SaaS, it's very much tied up in the venture capital world, and and we were a bootstrap business, so we were not a part of that world. Um, but the <laughs> the numbers in the VC world are just absolutely crazy, absolutely all over the place. You do hear stories of SaaS is selling for, you know, 10 times plus top line revenue, not even, I mean, a weird thing about SaaS is that it's priced on gross top line revenue, not on profit, which is just like, I don't know if that's gonna change in the next few years, because it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, so I actually found it extremely difficult to get a realistic view of, of what 
a good multiple would be. Did you did you find any resources that were helpful on that measure finding benchmarks? No, I really didn't. I mean, honestly, the best thing I found was like a few scattered blog. I was like desperate for any kind of blog post where someone told their own story and could share numbers, which, you know, so few of them actually share numbers. Um, you know, in my industry, um, Bear Metrics was sold, I think the same year I was or maybe the year before, and they were able to share their multiple. Which Do you recall what like that a, was? A 2X kind of multiple mm -hmm. somewhere somewhere in that that frame. I also Bear Metrics a is a of, small SaaS, yes. like self-funded, I, I believe, if, uh, Part of they the, had the some Starks funding. or the rest of us kind of community. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, kind of that world. They had some funding, yep. but not but not a lot. Um, and also, I think a lot of SaaS people have a very, very unrealistic view of how much their business is worth because we do hear these stories of strategic acquisitions where this company, you know, wasn't even making any money, and then they sold for for two hundred million. And then smaller SaaS businesses will think, what? My business is worth 200 million, but um, you know, I think it's the case that when you don't have huge revenue, which you know, let's say you're under, you know, five million or 10 million or something like that annual revenue, your multiples are going to be smaller than one of these kind of rocket ship larger companies. Yeah. So, so if I'm reading between the lines, so you're you're a few million in in revenue at your peak, and and you're and and you're really seeing a divide in what I'm hearing your your description between kind of bootstrap, self-funded, smaller SaaS companies, and then their cousins that are funded, you know, VC-backed or, or you know, private equity-backed, mm -hmm. uh, where the multiples are much higher. It, 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 for you, as you were going, it felt like almost you know two very different sort of experiences for those founders. Is that, is that how you felt? Yeah, I mean, it's also hard because when you're looking at, at SaaS companies, I mean, the vast majority of them just crash and burn. I mean, well, you know, like any business, obviously most businesses are not acquired at the end of their life. Most businesses mm -hmm. either just end or, or fail for whatever reason. So it's, it's hard because you can look at TechCrunch and read about acquisitions, but you don't read about all the companies that just shut down or, sure. you know, aqua hires is very, very common in, in this industry. So it's, you know, this is probably true in any industry. It's like you only read about the success stories. And of course, the crazier the success story is, the more press it gets and, and the more interesting it is to read about. Yeah, but, but how did that, how did that, land on you as a founder because I'd be curious I mean you must have seen the tech crunch articles and the mm -hmm. and, you know like this company's trading at 10 times revenue or whatever like what was that like to consume that media for you did you start to to did your mind start to wander and think well maybe we could get 10 times like what did that it, was it were you tempted was it was it where did your mind go there well, so when we sold, we did not have growth. Our revenue was flat. So that kind of um, squashed any ideas I had about being a, a mega high multiple because, you know, the script is the faster and stronger your growth rate is, the higher the multiple is. So 
Certainly when I sold, I wasn't expecting any kind of astronomical multiple because the business was flat. Um, and the thing is, like, even when we were at our, our kind of peak of fast growth, because we weren't in the VC world, we did not get that kind of interest and attention. I mean, we always got a lot of people pitching us um, for fundraising. A lot of people wanted to invest in us or... Uh, you know, at least put the junior analyst. We were on the junior analysts, you know, cold email list, whether or not they would have actually. You get those too, right? <laughs> yeah, I never found out. Um, but yeah, being not being VC backed and also um, being in the small business space. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, I'm still not sure how much of this is like a mindset thing or how much of this is true. There seems to be a lot less strategic acquisition opportunities for small business companies, I think for a few reasons, like one, we don't have that classic partner path. You know, so many companies get acquired by one of their um, partners or by one of their biggest customers or something like that. And that that door is just, you know, closed to you um, as a business that does SMB. And just looking at the SaaS landscape, um, there are just really not that many, you know, there's um, Intuit who bought MailChimp you know, who's largely kind of in the SMB world, like Intuit and Quick, where is Intuit Quick? Now I'm confused. Is Intuit and QuickBooks the same company? Yeah, QuickBooks is, yeah, yeah. Intuit, QuickBooks is a brand under Intuit. Yeah, Vistaprint's another brand that's made some big acquisitions. But yeah, you're right. There's mm -hmm. there's not a huge universe. Of there's like GoDaddy, they tend to do small business. But yeah, there's like, right. it's kind of a short list of like who's interested in that software small business place. Uh, so it's not like we were getting, you know, and this is to kind of skip to the end, like I didn't even pursue a strategic acquisition because I just felt like, well, if I haven't been getting strategic interest over the past seven years, it doesn't seem that likely that there's going to be tons of it when I'm seeking it out now. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into the flattening of the growth because you had very fast growth in mm -hmm. the beginning, as you say, like zero to a million in 11 months, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then flattening it at a few million. And I'm reading between the lines with the churn at six or 7% a month, uh, up to 10 sometimes, your organic marketing reaches a point where you can't, you can't keep replacing the leaky bucket. And exactly. so unless you are investing heavily in, in marketing, you're, you're gonna plateau at some point. And it's just gonna yes. kind of con con continue to, you'll continue to win customers, but they'll, you'll lose. And so you reach that point. And that's, it sounds like your point of where your organic marketing, the content marketing was winning you some customers, but you were losing as many and therefore you'd flattened. Is, am I interpreting that correctly? Absolutely. And another huge factor, which, uh, you know, this is kind of specific to SaaS, but I mean, it applies to other industries as well. So in SaaS, there's something called expansion revenue, which just means your existing customers spending more. Um, mm -hmm. And expansion revenue is important in SaaS because it's like the inverse of churn, uh, where, you know, if you have expansion revenue, that can make up for your churn because it's like, okay, I lost 5% of customers, but then my existing customers added 5% more to their spend. Edgar never had expansion revenue. Um, you know, we were focused on that small business market, so we didn't have like add team members for more money. We didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like an email marketing type of industry where people are used to paying more as their list grows. So that was something that was a really tough constraint about the business. We had churn, but we had no expansion 
to make up for it. So yeah, it was as our overall user base grew and that percentage of churn is more and more people, yeah, we hit a, a plateau where we were in, unable to make up our churn with new new customers. Is there a name for that plateau? It should be named. I, I don't know. <laughs> like it's such a common thing that company, but is there a name where? Well, there's a there's a famous talk by Gail Goodman um, at the Business of Software conference. You can look it up on YouTube called the long, slow SaaS ramp of death. Um. <laughs> Gail Goodman, of course, uh, the the CEO. Uh, I'm not sure she was the founder, but certainly a longtime CEO of Constant Contact, the email Contact, marketing software. That's right. Yeah. So that talk, the that long, talk is about slow this death. Is that what is, is that? The long, slow SaaS ramp of death. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> that's a cheery podcast oh, yeah. or YouTube. Okay, we'll we'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, but but she talks about that point mm. where the leaky bucket syndrome, et cetera. And I think constant contact has struggled with the same, the mm. same thing, because again, it's a small business market, but, but yeah. that's funny. Not funny. That's, that's interesting and helpful for, for me. What was it like for you when the growth slowed? I'd be curious, you know, the emotional impact of that yeah. and just how that impacted your motivation in the company. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard because you get asked all the time, well, why is it slowed down? And you're like, well, if I knew, I would know what to do about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I could mm. explain exactly what the problem is, I, I would have a much clearer idea of the solution. Um, and it was it was very frustrating and it was very demoralizing for the team because we were always setting targets and failing over and over and over again. Um, and honestly, you know, which is not so good, but I think is common, that definitely was a point in which I started getting more interested in pursuing other projects. Um, so I have my company now, Paperbell, which I launched in, in 2020. I had another company that I did before that that ended up folding. So I think this is so common that when companies start to do worse, the founder starts to get less interested. And guess what? That usually doesn't create a very good cycle um, of helping helping the company do better. And that was definitely a factor that happened at Edgar. Mm. What was it like among the team? You mentioned that they also found it somewhat demoralizing. What? Yeah, I mean, it was just, it's just hard, I think, when you are, you know, we're always trying to follow these, you know, systems for running the business and setting the big rocks and setting the OKRs and, you know, setting the goals and the milestones. And so it's like when you keep doing this and then you keep falling short of them, like I never figure it's like, what are we supposed to, are we supposed to be like, good try? Are we supposed to be like, you failed Is there a horribly. ribbon? <laughs> Please give me a ribbon. <laughs> like I just, yeah. it's, it's, I never, I mean, that's definitely not something that I ever figured out as a leader was like, what What do you do in a situation where people are trying and it's like the stuff you're trying um, is, is just not working. And, you know, we definitely had other problems within the organization. I feel like, you know, like a lot of companies, the more we grew headcount wise, the slower the pace went across everything. Um, we always had trouble like staying on priority. It always seemed like there was something else that made sense that was more important. I definitely struggled um, with those types of, of themes in the last few years of the company. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you are an entrepreneur 
in your bones. I mean, you've had so many businesses, you're into the next one. That must have also played a role. Anyone like that is, is all, I mean, I'll, I'll put the word in your mouth and you could tell me that no, that's not the case. But do, do you have shiny ball syndrome? Meaning you like new ideas and oh, yeah. they look new and fun. And yeah, uh, yeah um, absolutely. I mean, I think, like you said, for most entrepreneurs, yeah. it's just inherently hard to stay focused even when things are going well. So when things are going badly, you're like, can I just move on <laughs> to something else yeah. that's going to be that fun beginning part again? But to be clear, not everything was going badly. Like you, you had flattened in the terms of growth, but it was a profitable business. As I it was, it was a very profitable business. Yeah. So we always did um, maintain a very healthy profit margin. I mean, I think something that I did well is I always paid myself a very healthy salary. I didn't. Um, I was not interested in going down with a ship. I, I think a lot of yeah. A lot of founders, when things get worse, like get very like, I'm going to give up all my salary and reinvest it all back in the business. I was like, no, that's the that's not the point of this business. Like the point of this business is to provide a good living, you know, for me and my family, our employees. Um, and so, you know, we at times definitely had a headcount that was too high and we had to cut it back down. But I mean, the nice thing about being bootstrapped is it's hard it's hard to get too out of control because the reason, you know, the second you're unprofitable, you're out of cash and then and then your company's done. And we never, you know, took on debt or anything like that. So it, it was always very profitable. Like, can you share, um, and, and if you can't, I understand, but roughly like EBITDA margin uh, on a percentage basis would have been like 10 to 15, 15 to 20, like in that sort of range? Or were you higher I mean, than that? It, it, I can't really say, not because I can't share, but more because it varied so much over the years. At the end of the business, we had it kind of very much in maintenance mode with very like bare bones team. In other years, we did a ton of over hiring. I mean, I think the lowest it ever was, was like 10% would be like the very lowest it ever hit after my salary. Got it. Got it. And and, and you, your husband took a salary as well from the business as, as the developer. Yeah. I mean, we did it, you know, like tax stuff, different ways over the years, yeah. but he, he built the initial product and then he hired a dev team. Um, but then he did not stay with the business after that. So, you know, he's often like publicly not credited as a co-founder, even though he is, but part of the reason is because we didn't really, we didn't see it as really, we didn't view it as running the business together. We kind of viewed it as I ran the business. He was the product side in the beginning. Um, and then his involvement um, you know, with sometimes light or with sometimes nothing after that. Got it. That's helpful. So you reach this point uh, where you're starting to kind of, the growth is slowing. You're a bit frustrated that morale is, takes a, a hit. Did, mm. What were the options on the table at that point? Because you had tried some things quarter after quarter, you kind of keep missing the numbers. Did you have a set of of potential options. Obviously, one was to sell the company, mm -hmm. which is the, the route that you ultimately chose to go down. But but what else was on the table in terms of potentials, potential ideas? Well, I mean, that was, it went on for a very long time before I got to the point of being serious about selling the business. So before I sold the business, I had taken myself out of the business. So we had a leadership team that was running it. Um, I would usually have a call once a week with the president of the company, and that was my only involvement. So that was, you know, not a solution for growing the business, but a solution for like me being happier with the business. Um, but really, 
in the beginning of 2021, which is the year that I sold the business, I just got really clear that I was I was just sick of this and I needed to make a really drastic change. I had also, I had moved, the team was all in the US. We've always been a remote company, but all um, American. So the team was all in the US in 2018. Um, I had moved to the UK, which really took me out of the business even more than I anticipated because we were remote, but because we were all in the US, we still, we had a lot of like live meetings. It wasn't a remote company that was like, work in the middle of the night, work whenever, you know, we would work kind of during the day together. And once I moved in the UK, I didn't have any, the president of the company was in LA, nine hour time difference. Nine hour time you know, difference, yeah. I, I had little kids. I couldn't work from five to eight, you know, that's this kid time. Um, so I, I got very taken out of the business by that move geographically, even even more than I anticipated. Um, so this is all to say, yeah, for a while, I kind of was just sort of like checked out, resigned to it in a lot of ways. And then in the beginning of 2021, I was like, okay, do I, um, do I like start over with a new team in Europe? Do I go back into being super active, you know, take back over that CEO role and really rebuild? Like, I was looking at a lot of different options and at the end of the day, I it's like I knew what I should do and then I knew what I was actually had the energy for. And I think as far as what I quote unquote should have done, there was absolutely an opportunity to get the business back on track, to get it back to growth. But I just like didn't have that fire in my heart to do it. And I think if the leader of the company, like, you know, running a, running a business is hard. Like you have to be really motivated to overcome obstacle after obstacle. And if, if I didn't really have it in me to really dig back in and say like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely doing this no matter what, I knew that it wasn't really going to happen. So that's when I kind of like lined up all my options and I'm like, okay, selling, selling the business is really what makes the most sense for me now. I love the fact that um, you hired a president and, and everything was sort of operating in the U.S. Obviously, you were very separate, which would have been attractive to an acquirer that it wasn't mm. sort of dependent on you. I'm curious about the extent to which you compensated the president for growth. How did you structure their variable compensation um, was it all based on profitability or, or steady state or was it, were they heavily incentivized to grow their revenue? I mean, you know, maybe that was a mistake. Like there were some just growth, you know, she had like a good base salary and then there were some growth bonuses that weren't hit. Um, you know, I don't know if I had done things differently and made it, I will say what I, a mistake I made in retrospect is one, you know, I do think that she wasn't the the right fit for that role. And I hope, you know, if she listens to this, that wouldn't make her feel bad. Um, she is in a leadership role at a startup now um, in the people operations side, but she was always absolutely amazing at. Um, hmm. And I'm glad that's the direction that she went because she's so, so talented there. I, I think she probably wasn't quite right for the president role, especially at a like struggling company, which is a really, you know, a really hard um, not to crack. Like she was, she, we always, the team absolutely loved working there. Like it was a great team. Everyone loved it. Um, but we, <laughs> we weren't hitting our targets, you know? And something I did wrong is like, 
when those targets weren't hit over and over again, like I said, I was kind of like, okay, you know, I should have seen like, okay, like she's, you know, we need to get different people on the leadership, you know, maybe that have done this before at another company. I don't know, but that should have been kind of experimented with more than it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Compensating the two IC or the president or general manager, whatever you call them, the the person you're you're deputizing to run the company, is one of these like such tricky alchemy mm-hmm. of art and science. I don't have the secret, but it it does feel like there's some magic cocktail that in you know you've got to pay them a good base salary because you mm-hmm. you want someone good and and right. you can't. You know, so but there has to be a variable component, and and I've heard stories where if it's all tied to the exit, then your two IC is just focused on the exit all the time, mm-hmm. right? If it's mm-hmm. all tied to EBITDA, they're tempted not to grow the business because right. they just want to squeeze out all the profit of the business, and so it's this weird cocktail of like, how do you incentivize them correctly? And to your point, find the right person because if you've got sort of a more maintenance type person, they're mm-hmm. not going to grow it, and if you find the the kind of growth hacker person they're probably, you know, not going to protect your EBITDA quite as well. So it's mm-hmm. like, how do you figure out what to do and who? And it's, and, and the 2IC role probably evolves over time. As the business changes, yeah. you probably need a different person in that in that spot. Yeah, we did I mean, an interview. I didn't, I didn't figure ahead. that one out. We're going to have to listen to another podcast where they figured it out. Well, you know, it does. It, it, the the one that does come to mind is an interview I did years and years ago with a guy named Damien James, who an Australian guy who built a company, and he got to the point where it sounds very similar to to your experience. They got to a couple million in sales, and they just started missing their targets every quarter, mm-hmm. quarter, at quarter, quarter. And he he brought in a, a two IC, and uh, and that person had some experience in, in scaling, and 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 the business was able to to kind of get out of that. Uh, but it's you know uh, it, it's um, it's a really challenging time for sure. Mm-hmm. And did you also think about was one of the other considerations? So you're you're you know you're thinking you know, sell. Maybe I need to take over the role of president again. Did did you also think about maybe raising money? And, and getting no. that sort of war chest, that was not on the consideration set. That was not on the table because I had, so I, I had always like loved bootstrapping. And then I kind of made reference to before to a business that was in between Meet Edgar and Paperbell, the business I'm running now that, that yeah. folded pretty quickly. That business, we raised um, just a little bit of money for it. We raised 300K, um, I always say friends and family or just friends and friends my case, um, <laughs> friends and friends around. Um, so we had raised 300 K for it. And I was just like, never again. I like, we had the, a very easy time raising all of our investors were amazing. No pressure from our investors. And I felt so much stress and so much pressure from having to like succeed with other people's money. Um, I run like a very chill business. I am all about the lifestyle business. That is not a negative word for me. So for me, having investment was just like, that's a, that's a hard no, that's a no go. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ever, was, was another consideration on the table, just keeping it steady state, uh, you know, a couple million in revenue, profitable, maybe, maybe I'll just take take the dividends here and, and keep it for 20 years. Like, was that part of your, was that another consideration? 
Yeah. And I mean, I kind of did that. Like I said, we had it in, in pretty much a maintenance mode um, with a, a much smaller team by the time I sold it. And honestly, it was so boring. And it was just kind of like, why don't I just why don't I just sell this? And also, that is where I got really serious about doing the math of different options. Um, taxes were a huge consideration, which I feel like people never talk about, you know, often when you sell a business. And for me, it was the case that I would pay 20% long term capital gains, I was paying a much higher tax rate on just collecting income for the business. Um, so and also, you know, this business, it had a lot of risk factors. So social media scheduling tool, we were entirely dependent on the platforms allowing us to post there. And we did have major problems over the years with, you know, not getting access or losing access or having features taken away, functionality taken away. So it was also the type of business where you're like, if you just kind of left it alone, at some point, you're going to get cut off from the social networks. Also, like, it wasn't it wasn't a business that you could just leave alone. We're constantly having to like apply to Facebook's new partner program and change like how everything was connected behind the scenes. So that made it less appealing to just have it have it sit. Yeah. So there was some kind of platform risk here too. Um, yeah. It sounds like. Uh, got it. Okay. So you decide to sell. What next? What did you? Where did you go from there? So where I went from there is I was like I need to learn everything <laughs> about selling a business, you know, um, because I, I think like most people initially felt very, very intimidated by the process. And I think it's one of those things where there's a lot of terms and a lot of language that you haven't heard before, you know, especially if you've come from bootstrapping world and, you know, you don't have investors that are there. I would say a great thing about having investors is like you have people on your team that want to help you sell the business. You know, having investors is is amazing in that sense when it's time to sell. And and I didn't have that, so um, I really started with like I need to learn everything about this. And it's <laughs> I, I'm kind of shocked that more people don't do that because there's not that many books to read. <laughs> there's really not. Like I was like I'm gonna buy all of them. There's like five of them. There's there's really not that many. You know. I wrote um, a blog post about this and in the blog post, you know, as you know, I gave, I think I literally said, um, you're, you're a dummy if you don't read <laughs> the, the art of selling, because it really was like the book um, that just got really detailed for me. You know, your book, I really appreciate how concrete and hands-on and detailed it is about just every part of the process. Um, you know, really detailed about what acquirers, kind of what strategies and tricks they're going to try to pull, uh, you know, and pulling down your valuation or during the negotiation process. So I read all the books. Um, your book was definitely the most valuable one. And I did also listen to tons of episodes of this podcast. And I think, you know, for any new area that you want to learn, just that kind of immersion, like after at first when you listen to an episode, you know, there's all these terms that you're having to Google. You're like, what is this? What is that? After you listen to like 20 episodes, you're like, okay, I know what they're talking about. I can follow the story. So that was definitely step one for me is like total immersion. Also talking to entrepreneurs who had sold their business, asking them my questions. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. You listen to a bunch of interviews of Built already. I'd be curious which one is the most memorable and why? Ooh, um, uh, uh, Addy or Adi Panier? Adi Panier, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
what makes his story so memorable for you? Should have, I should have prepped for that. You put me on the spot of it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your, just your gut reaction. Like, why do you, like, what was it about his story that you're like, man, that resonates with me? I remember now. I mean, one, he was in, I don't think I have a very interesting answer for this. I think it was just one of the ones that was the most similar mm. um, to my situation. Because, you know, a lot of, is it is of course a wide range of industries um and and there are a lot of stories too where it's like our biggest customer bought us and i was like okay like you know there's always something (laughs) you can learn but i'm like okay my process is going to be quite different from that and i guess his 80s process was much more like i have decided to sell this business i am going out to the marketplace um you know he talks specifically about like negotiating and like um pitting the, the offers against each other so his process I thought was like very directly applicable to what I could do for my process. Yeah, Adi Pinar is a great story, South African entrepreneur. He, one of the other things that that is similar to your story, I believe, is he had a little platform risk in the sense that he mm-hmm. was a, a, I think it was a Dunning email software that was attached to Shopify. So as mm-hmm. Shopify expanded right. and ballooned and exploded, you know, Addy's boat ride, you know, rose with Shopify. But at some point he realized that, wow, you know, if Shopify were to stumble or if they shut us down or created their own product similar to ours, we would be out of business. And similar, sounds like to you, one of the things in the back of your mind was, man, like, you know, these social media platforms, if they were to ever lock us out or change their algorithm, it could it could impact us. Does that, do you recall that part of the Addy story? Yes, yes. And I'm also thinking about how I... I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I think something else I got from his story. So I remember he worked with um, Einar, who I also know, and I also spoke to, you know, that was his, Einar would die if he heard me using the word broker, but you know, that was his <laughs> broker uh, throughout the process. Um, and, you know, he talked about how just like, Einar was so like fiercely protective of any bullshit. And like, it made me kind of see the kind of stance that I would need to take for myself. And for me, like I knew, I think some, like he loved having Einar be kind of the bad cop. Um, I felt pretty confident I could do that for myself, but I I really saw that you have to, I think you do have to have some bravado. And, and something else I saw in the process is like, you have to hype yourself up about your own business because you know sometimes you're at the point where you're selling because things aren't going so well, right? Like, because, like at the end of the day, you want to get rid of it for some reason. Um, and of course, acquirers are often going to go in and kind of like, <laughs> like twist the screws on your worst fears, you know, like all the worst things about the business. They'll be like, ooh, that's really bad. And that's really bad. So something that, that helped me a lot throughout the process is like, I really talked to myself into what a valuable asset I had, you know, for me, that self-talk was like, okay, how many super profitable bootstrap businesses are there that are in the millions in revenue? Like a hundred percent subscription revenue. We have no whale clients, you know, it's like super steady every month. We don't have to spend anything on advertising to acquire our clients. Just like all the good points of the business, like really, really focusing on like, okay, this is a really rare asset. And if you want a business like this, there are not that many out there. I might be the only one that's selling 
right now. So like just really like getting myself like hyped up and protective of this is a valuable asset and you cannot tell me otherwise. That's awesome. I love that because you're absolutely right. That's critical, that bravado. What did you use as a primer for that? Like, did, did you have a coach who pumped your tires up? Did you read a book? Like, was there, was there something that you turned to t- for that sort of like fight bravado in your own words? Yeah. I mean, someone? so there, there's a few things. I mean, one, um, in my blog post, I mentioned this book called, uh, winning through intimidation which people are like always like, what is the title of that book? Winning Through Intimidation is, um, is actually a book about not being intimidated. Um, and it's, it's a really fascinating book. And a lot of it is just that he points out there's always a power dynamic in any relationship between two people where there's some sort of power dynamic going on of like, are we peers? Like who's, who's in control here? And you know, basically the story of the book is how he's uh, a real estate broker but he kind of flips the script to make clients want to come to him to be a part of his private collection instead of, you know, just pitch, oh, please, if you want to like, do you want to sell your real estate? Do you need a broker? I'm a broker and I can help you. Um, so that book was very influential for me. Um, it's, also just to be clear, it's called Winning Through Intimidation. Intimidation by Robert Ringer, I think. Awesome. We'll put that in the show yeah. notes for sure. You said, uh, you, I, I cut you off. You said, I also... Oh, yeah. So something um, that was very impactful from your book was um, the idea of BATNA, best alternative to negotiated agreement. Is that right? Yeah, you got okay. it. Yep. Yep. BATNA. So, you know, I think I had heard the phrase before, but it wasn't ever something I had I had thought a lot about. So for me, my BATNA, I mean, one was the BATNA of I can keep this business and it's a profit machine, but it's also the BATNA of like, if you don't want this, like I, somebody does. The BATNA of like, I am not in a situation where this is just like some kind of dud <laughs> that is never gonna sell. Like if the, if the stars don't align this year, that does not mean that I give up. Maybe I'll run it for another year and try again next year. But just like the BATNA didn't only mean oh, I'll just keep running it if I don't sell it. The BATNA also meant like, I know I have something really valuable here. So if you're not seeing it or like if this is not the path, you know, like I didn't use a broker. So in the back of my head, I was like, okay, well, if I don't succeed on my own, then I'll try working with someone else. Like that, that was a BATNA too, that there are so many different paths to selling the business. So it's just like keeping that clear idea in my head that like, it's, it's not even just like the best alternative. Like I got a lot of alternatives on the table. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're pumping your tires up. You've got your Batman mind of keeping it, and there's other people in the in the wings. Where do you go from there? What what is your tactical first step? Do you do you list it on a listing site, or where where did you go from there? Yeah. So I did kind of a lot of exploring of like the different marketplaces and listing sites, and um, I I kind of after I had done so much research and understanding the marketplace, I was like. I know who the best buyer is for my business. I I was very clear on that. The best buyer for my business was a group that acquires profitable bootstrapped SaaS businesses. And in my space, that was a very clear thing. Like this, this, you know, is an established business model 
there are these groups and all they do is go out and buy these businesses. Um, Constellation Software is probably the most famous one. They've bought, you know, I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands of businesses. They had no interest in mine for the record. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they're kind of the, the model for that type of business. And I just thought, okay, if I, I don't want, for me, the biggest thing I didn't want was like a bunch of tire kickers and time wasters because out of so many of the entrepreneurs who I talked to who had sold their business, that was kind of like the worst part. <laughs> the worst part was dealing with all the people who like didn't really have the money, who weren't really serious. And I was, I didn't want to go to a marketplace and just have to wade through all these people that weren't going to be a good buyer for the business. And that's, that's like, again, where the bad thing comes in. It's like, okay, I have a great asset. If, if you buy bootstrap SaaS businesses, and you know, they're not always bootstrapped, but basically bootstrap is kind of a shorthand for saying like, this is gonna be an easy sale because we don't have to get a bunch of people to agree to this. Like I owned hundred percent of the business. I was the only decision maker. Like I, I'm a home run for this type of buyer. So if I'm a home run for this type of buyer, why don't I just talk to all of them? There's not that many of them. So um, I, I have the list now in my blog posts so that other people don't have to spend as much time Googling and researching as I did, but I like, it's all on the internet. Like I literally just Google, dug through lists, dug through everything to find the list of all these types of companies. Cause it's Ballpark, like- Park, how many names on the on the list? I think there's about 20, something like that. Yeah. So you you got the short list and I love this by the way, they, they've all got a, a business thesis in your space. Mm -hmm. So they're likely to be interested. Where did you go from there? I mean, did you, like, how did you reach out? What was this process like? So, yeah, I put, um, I'm just looking because I know I have the email in my blog post. My first email says, the subject line is selling Meet Edgar. I've decided to sell my SaaS business, Meet Edgar, and we're currently looking for the best match for the new owner. Let me know if you'd like me to keep you updated. Um, so that was just a very direct, <laughs> very clear email. I am selling my business. Are you potentially interested? I love the line, let me know if you'd like me to keep you updated. There's some thought that went into that because you didn't say, let me know if you're interested. Right. What was your thinking behind that line? Let me know if you'd like me to keep you updated. Well, I knew, you know, largely from your book and the research I'd done that creating a competitive process was like one of the most important things in having a successful sale. I mean, that was a huge takeaway from you from your book is like, always, always, always avoid just having one interested buyer. Like you're always gonna get your price up if you have multiple buyers. And, and also my lessons from winning through intimidation, it's like, I'm not coming to you <laughs> begging you to look at, you know, I hope someone's gonna be interested. It's like, there's, there's a process that's happening. You know, this, this business is being sold. You know, they don't know if I already, have someone who you know has given me a number and now I'm looking for other people. It's like, it just much more creates this tone of like the process is happening. It can happen with or without you. Would, would you like to jump on board? Interesting, love it. How many responses did you get from the 20 emails that you sent? I got a lot of responses. I'm just like scanning my article to see if I wrote the actual number in here. I mean, I probably had calls with like, I had calls with a lot of them, like 
you know, 10 to 15. Wow. So yeah, let's say I emailed about 20 and had calls with about 10 to 15. Um, because again, I was very specific in like, these are the types of companies that acquire companies like mine. And what was the tenor of those calls? Like what sorts of questions did they ask? Well, I sent, I did send them, if they wanted to schedule a call, I did send them um, some numbers. And so another kind of part of the story is I actually had a good friend who was selling their, their SaaS business at the same time. And they had a totally different process because um, they ended up selling to like a strategic VC backed buyer. And they worked with like a CFO that did a really complicated data room for them. I was like, I'm not gonna do any of that stuff. I was like, I'm just gonna like send you a screenshot from my MRR tool. I cannot be bothered to do all this like fake math of, and sometimes that is totally the move. You know, it, it, it totally depends on, on who your audience is and who you're talking to. I'm like, I am not slicing and dicing my P&L 10 different ways to tell a different story. I can't be bothered. Like I'm just sending the numbers. Um, so that made my process just really straightforward and really easy because it's like, it was just like no game playing. It's like, here's a snapshot of the business. Um, and then in the, you know, in the first call, we just did kind of the chit chat about, oh, why are, you know, why are you selling? And I had a great reason because I started the next business and I was like, well, now I've got to product market fit. Now I want to put all my effort on the next business. So it was like, I had a very clear answer for why now, why are you selling? Um, you was know, that thought through? Like, was that intentional? Did you think through, okay, I've got to be able to address this question. Definitely. I thought through like what are kind of the biggest, you know, objections and concerns going to be. I definitely thought about my narrative of like, you know, why the business hasn't had growth, some of the external factors that were part of that, you, you know, on this podcast. Uh, the external factors? No, how did you explain why the business hadn't hadn't had recent growth? Well, I talked about some of the um uh, like that we had, you know, not innovated fast enough, that we had some competitors that had taken a bigger chunk of the market. Um, we did have dips where we lost um, functionality from some of the tools. So, yeah, you know, basically, like, it's interesting because the more, I mean, what you never want to make it sound like, and I think it also is very rarely true, is just like, this business is just doomed. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no market for it. It's like, if you can focus more on kind of, here's the mistakes that I made, then you can get people thinking about like, okay, well maybe we know how to, maybe we have a better solution for those mistakes. So you were fairly transparent with them about some of the mistakes that you made. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it's like, there's no point in pretending that this business has gone perfectly. Like if I can be transparent about the mistakes, then like they can start to form ideas, yeah, of, of how they could correct those mistakes and how they could get the business back in growth mode. At what point did you share your churn numbers with these 10 or 15 people? Right from the beginning. And what was the reaction to the churn? It, again, I've always, I think it's normal for small business. I didn't get, you read so much stuff that that's so high for SaaS, but I think these acquirers knew the small business market and like, obviously no one was like, your churn's great, but it wasn't, and actually it never got brought up as a like, ooh, that I don't think we can touch this business because of the churn. At what point did you have people sign a, a non-disclosure agreement? I don't even remember if I did. Okay. So you get to the 10 to 15 <laughs> calls. All good. Uh, you're having casual chats with these folks, sharing screen grabs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Where does it go from there? 
So from there, I once I kind of got the initial interest, I, I felt like I am in a race to keep this moving. Um, and some of the companies were interested in moving a lot faster than others, which ended up being my main negotiation point. So I had like three companies right from the beginning that like, you know, I could tell that they were serious about wanting to move forward. Um, but SureSwift, the company I ended up selling to, was like very good about like, okay, here's when our next call is gonna be, like here's the next materials that we need. The good thing was it was very, very easy to share everything they needed. One, because I was totally transparent and that was obvious to them that I wasn't, I didn't have my version of the PL and then a month later <laughs> I'm gonna send you the bookkeeper's version of the PL. You know, it was just like I just sent all everything I had. Um, right from the beginning. And the business was so simple. 100% of our revenue was in Stripe. We didn't have anybody mailing us checks. We didn't have any custom plans, custom work. It's just like, here's our Stripe account, shows you all the revenue, you know, here's the ProfitWell account, shows you the churn. Very, very transparent. Um, you know, our tech stack was like just industry best practices. There were no like crazy surprises there. So, yeah, SureSwift was much more consistent where some of the other companies, oh, well, you know, we're gonna have to have these internal meetings and we're gonna have to kind of talk about it and think about it. And that actually ended up, it, it was interesting because it, it could have been viewed as a, a bad thing of like, you know, I, cause I didn't get more than one LOI. I only ended up getting one LOI, but I kind of used it as my negotiation point where I was like, okay, SureSwift, if we can get to a number, I will drop out from these other guys. Like if you guys hit my number, I don't need to keep moving forward with the other ones. I, I can just move forward with you. So in some ways, like it ended up kind of working out for me that they were a bit slower and not ready to go to the LOI stage yet because it just allowed me to go all in with a company that did end up being a great match for me. How did you calculate your number? So it was largely calculated by what kind of I thought the risks were if I kept the business in maintenance mode. Um, you know, if I just if I just keep the business in maintenance mode and I just kind of let it run, you know, it's gonna just keep declining over time. Um, like I said, you know, the, their earnings are different from the tax implications. There's a chance that it could just go to hell because we'd lose access from some of our partners. Um, to be totally honest, my number was lower than the number I ended up with. Like my number that I would have taken was was lower than what I sold for because I I was ready I was ready to get out. So I just I just tried to be realistic about like what is the value to me if I just kind of let it run down and so then what's going to be better than that value. So if I'm reading into this correctly, you you looked at if you did nothing over time, the business would atrophy. But during that time, you would be able to draw profits out of the business. Right. And so you you estimated, well, we've got X number of years until it went to zero. Right. What's that profit worth? And if it's in excess of that, I'm in. Exactly. The way you calculated. Exactly. Got it. Excellent. So what did that amount to? And again, if you can't share, I totally appreciate that. But on a multiple of revenue where would that have sat in terms of your number, if you will? 
Um, the like, yeah, the like lower what I actually would have taken was probably about one X revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so you get this letter of intent from SureSwift and what was your reaction as you read it? Well, it was lower than we ended with, like significantly lower. Um, what do you but, mean? Uh, <laughs> how, how else do I say it? <laughs> what, you, what, no, sorry. I just want to be clear. When you say it was lower, you're, you read the document, and then by the time you closed, it, had, it, it was not as high as what was in the original document. No, it was much higher. The LOI was much lower than the sale price. The LOI was much lower than the sale price. Wow, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe I'm using the wrong term. I think there, no, I am using the wrong term. This was the thing before the LOI, I guess. Okay, okay. And what was that thing? Well, now I don't, now I'm confused. Is, are you, do you usually have the final price in the LOI? Well, in a typical deal, there's a letter of intent, which Okay, has... wait, I, I figured it out now. There was the first LOI and then there were more LOIs. You know what I, I mean? See. Okay, so there's versions of it or, or yes. turns of the LOI. Okay. Yes. So the, the, the sale price, the price that was negotiated went up as you negotiated effectively. Kept negotiating the LOI, right. So the very first LOI they ever sent me, yes, that's clear. The first LOI they sent me it was significantly lower than what the sale price ended up being and I negotiated up the LOI. Yeah, got it. That makes that makes sense. And so what was your reaction when you read the first one? And again, where I'm asking this is sometimes people are like, when they get the first one, they're like, they're offended because it's lower than they'd hoped. And they, they kind of throw a fit and, and throw their toys out of the pram and say, no, you know, and, 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 and they end up sabotaging their deal because they, they come off as unreasonable. So I'm just curious as to, did did you take offense to their first offer? Or was it like okay, we're let's negotiate? <laughs> you no, because like, their first offer, their first offer was already like fine. It was already higher than what my like true minimum oh. was. Um, okay, so why did you? I just really underestimated it? my minimum. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> were you tempted just to accept it and move on? Uh, my husband was. <laughs> Oh, it was in the million, so he was like, "Take it, yeah. take it, take it, take it." <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. because because to be honest, like some of the things you shared so far, like it would lead me to believe that, like, I'm not surprised that you tempt you were tempted to take it because you know, like some people fancy their business up and they create, perf- you know you know, like adjusted EBITDA statements and they're not sending screen grabs of like right. profit well, you know what I mean? They're they're dressing up their business and you're like, no, yeah. I just want to be really transparent. I want this to go fast and quick. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that one of your sort of knee-jerk reactions was like, maybe I'll just take it. Uh, but, or at least in the case of your husband, it was his knee-jerk. Yeah. So why did you not just take it? Because, I mean, I remember saying this to my husband because I like, you know, I told him about the offers. Just take it. I was like, I was like, so you think their negotiation strategy is to start with their absolute best, highest final offer? Like, you think that's their strategy? Because that seems pretty unlikely. That seems pretty unlikely to me. And also, if that is like, let's find out. You know what I mean? Because there's just, this is where, like, this is where having that bravado is so important because this is where people get really intimidated and really nervous. And I just thought, like, it's very rare that you lose the initial offer, right? Like, you really have to be a jerk 
to lose the initial offer. Even if you try to negotiate and you're unsuccessful, like, you know, then you just, well, never mind. I guess I'll just take that first thing you sent me. Like, that's all good. So, you know, and if that is truly their best and final, then they'll just tell you that, you know, you try to go to them and they'll just come back and they'll say, actually, you know, we don't negotiate at all. That's it. That's it. Take it or leave it. Um, so that was, that was not the case. Um, and I actually loved the negotiation process. Like I had a lot of fun with it, which I didn't really know that I would, but that was by far the most exciting part because there was so much excitement and tension, you know, waiting for that next, because they always tell it like, you know, I think this is usually how it goes. They tell you the number on the call. They make you wait for the call and then they like tell you the number because they want to see, <laughs> see your face, you know, how you'll, how you'll, how you'll react. Um, so did and they do so, that before they set the first LOI? No, before the first one, he gave me a kind of range. He gave me on a call a kind of range. He's like, I want you know, I want you to know kind of what to expect, and he gave me a kind of range um, before he sent the first one. I didn't know exactly. How did you react to that range? Um, I was just like, I I think I said something like, you know, so just let me send it over. We'll see. You know, I just, I said something like, you know, as you know, I'm talking to a few companies right now, so so send it over. We'll see what happens. Got it. Got it. Okay. So how did you raise the specter of, this isn't going to work for me? Like, I'd be curious, like, was it in an email? Was it on a phone call? What was the, what were the words you used that enabled you not to sound like a prick and ungrateful, mm. you know, whatever, but at the same time saying, hey, I'm not going to take the first offer. What did you say? So I always, I always position it against the other companies. So I was always like, hey, as you know, I'm talking to other companies. I have other companies in the running. I'm like, this number is not quite the number for me to not move forward with them. So I'm like, you know, we can, we can wait. Like, if this is your number, I can say, because I was always transparent to them. I'm like, I haven't gotten LOIs from them. So I don't, I don't know what their number is. You know, I had talked kind of broad ranges with them and I knew that everyone was kind of in the same type of ballpark for broad ranges. Um, but I was like, I don't know what they're gonna offer, so it just wouldn't make any sense for me to say yes at this point when I don't know what those numbers are. I'm like, but I have a yes number. So if you can if you can get to my yes number, then I'll just cut it off with them once you hit that number. Did they ask what it was? Eventually. <laughs> but yeah, Did I didn't. Did you tell them? Um, we just kept driving it up until I was like, yeah, this is my, this is my yes number. So you did not tell them, in no. other words. They just kept coming back and back and back. Yeah. Interesting. And so you mentioned that they'd soften it or sort of test the waters a little bit by having a phone call. So the second mm -hmm. iteration of the LOI, there was a phone call prior. Yeah, I think we ended up going back and forth, like something like three three times. And we would have okay. calls and we would kind of talk about, you know, I don't know, we'd talk about what was happening with the process. I mean, they'd be... They'd be short calls. I mean, obviously, it's mm -hmm. always like you're seeing, you're trying to read the mood of the other of the other person, sure. you know? Yeah, yeah. And and how did you know there wasn't another turn? Like, what was what was your indication that you know what this is probably as far as I can push them? I think I just genuinely got to a great number for me. I I do think it's possible that there could have been a little more, but I think you kind of intuitively get to a point where you feel like this is a good deal. This is fair. I feel like it's a good deal for me. I feel like it's fair for them. I feel like this is what the business is worth. So 
I didn't look at it as I have to get every dollar that could possibly on the, be on the table. I looked at it like when this is like feeling good for both parties, when I'm super happy with the number, I'm going to stop there. And that's, that's what I did. And, and it, you know, I've got to ask the question and so what was the number? And I, I don't think you can answer it directly, but maybe you can share as much as you can share or comfortable sharing. Yeah, I can, I can share what can give people a guess. Um, I can share that it was a, a seven-figure transaction that tells you it was less than 10 million um, and that we were at a few million annual revenue. So that you can, you can guess what, what type of number it might have been. Awesome, awesome. That's, that's super helpful. And did the other people ever come to the table or you mentioned yeah. it, it? No, they never did. No. So, I mean, it's, it's possible that they were serious, you know, that they never would have come up with an LOI. Um, I don't know. I didn't need to, I didn't need to find out. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating, uh, to have this sort of person lurking behind the scenes or these offers, these potential offers in some ways, it's almost more valuable that they had not come to the table mm -hmm. because you, you know, once they had come to the table, you, you may have given away a little bit uh, your hand in the sense of like, they might have been more disappointing and you may have even right. lessened your your appetite to negotiate. But because they never, they hadn't come forward yet, you yeah. it, it was uh, still a question mark. Fascinating. What was your dinner table conversation the night that you accepted the LOI. I'd be curious to know, because your husband had said, look, let's just take the first offer. And, mm. and I'd be curious to know what that dinner table was. Like, was it an I, I told you so conversation? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, like, he was proud of me. <laughs> that I, had, I bet. <laughs> I bet. That I had moved it up. I mean, you know, it's funny. Like, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs listening can identify. We have these big goals. When we hit them, it's like, eh. you know, <laughs> I think it's, it's almost always a little anticlimactic. And, and like I said, the process of the negotiation was absolutely more exciting um, than getting to the final number. So like I felt, I felt happy with it. I had a great experience with ShoreSwift as far as the negotiation. Like I, I have to give them huge kudos because my friend who is going through the same process at the same time, her acquirer, pulled every bullshit trick in the book, like pulled the like changing the deal at the last minute multiple times. Um, Jersowith never did anything like that. And you know, I didn't know that yet that they would continue that way at that point, but I knew that so far our interactions had felt very genuine and very like, we both have things that we want, let's, let's come together so that this how, works for everybody. How much difference was there between the first offer and the third offer like on a percentage basis was it 10 percent bigger 50 percent bigger like could you share no i don't think i can share that okay okay that's totally fine so but it, it improved over three mm -hmm. turns and you got to a point where you were happy well i'm super happy for you and that it all worked yeah. out i would love to ask you a couple of last lightning round questions they yeah. just require like a a quick answer what was the slimiest trick that a prospective acquirer tried to play on your prospective investor? Um, I don't, I don't have anything because, because of how I did the process. 
Um, and like that was again back to the Batna thing. I'm like, I'm gonna do this in a way that I think could be really fast and straightforward and easy. If I have to make it harder, I will. But let's start with with the easy stuff. What was the biggest mistake you made in the process of selling your company? Um, I'll tell you what hurt the valuation the most, the feedback what I heard was that we did not have a robust dev team when we sold. And all the companies were like, it is so hard to hire developers and we want developers who have history with the software. Um, and SaaS is not valued on profit. So it didn't matter that we had a higher profit because we had a smaller dev team. They would have liked to have a bigger dev team. So that was definitely a lesson learned for next time. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached during the process of selling? Um, I mean, you always think, is this really going to happen? Like, you know, through due diligence and through, it's like until the check clears and then until the second check clears, because I did have, it was in um, two parts, not like dependent on anything, but it was, you know, the second payment was, was six months later. Um, you just, you, you know, from all those horror stories, like that you cannot count on it until the money clears. So it wasn't, I mean, it really wasn't a super tumultuous process, but I certainly had emotions up and down of like, is this really going to work out? Is this really going to happen? What was the highest point? Um, when I think it was verbal when they first said what ended up being the final number. And I knew kind of that, that rift between the first number and the final number. And I felt like I did it. <laughs> yeah, I did it. I negotiated my business for a great exit. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. You've, uh, you've been super generous about, about your, your consumption of the podcast before and, uh, the Art of Selling Your Business Book, which I'm grateful for. So thank you for sharing that. Were there other resources that you used? I've also got a note here about winning through intimidation. We'll mm -hmm. put that in the show notes at builttosell.com. But were there any other resources that you found be particularly helpful in helping you educate yourself about this process? Yeah, uh, Dan Andrews wrote a book called After the Exit. Um, that detailed their process and selling their business. It was especially useful. They did have a lot of kind of bullshit time waster type of buyers that they started to go down the journey with. Um, and also the book talks about different thought experiments for what to consider if you should sell your business and alternatives you should consider. Um, so that was definitely really helpful in my decision. Like I said, my decision to be like, I'm going to start with what I think could be the most obvious and kind of easy path to success so that hopefully I don't have to do all the time wasters. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes as well. So after the exit, Dan Andrews, that's helpful. Last question. Please tell me you bought yourself a trophy to commemorate the success and achievement. Absolutely. Absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people, people are always like, what, oh, what did, what did you do? But it's like, well, I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old, so you can't just like, you know, jet off to Paris for a week. It's like I made lunch for someone. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like having small children is uh, is very humbling because, um, yeah, you just can't have this like fun disruption to your life all of a sudden. So 
I did I didn't buy any trophies. I mean, although for me, like I had always paid myself very well along the journey. And I had um, another business that my partner bought me out of a few years before this exit. So like I was already doing really well financially. This absolutely was a new financial milestone for me. Um, but I was not one of those people who's like, I put my blood, sweat and tears and I was broke for 15 years until finally I had my payday. That's just never how I've, I've viewed business. Um, I do have like a money pet renovation going on now that will um, eat up a lot of the, a lot of the revenue from the business. So yeah, my, my money pit house is my trophy. <laughs> There you go. Well, it will be a wonderful trophy you'll live in and enjoy for many years. Some guy I interviewed bought a, a vacuum cleaner as his trophy. So at least you're at least you've beat the vacuum Better cleaner story. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, I'm super grateful for again your generous comments about uh, the podcast and the book and and you sharing your story here today. I think it it will help a lot of people in the same shoes that you found yourself in. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and I wanted to um, add one thing that we forgot to say during the interview. So I'm now a scout for SureSwift, which means I help them find other companies to acquire. Um, so if you listen to this and you think that SureSwift could be a good match for you, um, we can have a call and I can learn about your business and then I can give you a warm intro if appropriate. Uh, so the best way to facilitate that, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm LKR on Twitter, you can send me uh, a DM if you'd like an intro to SureSwift. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to end with that. So tell people where else they can find you because you've got a great blog. Uh, can you share the URL for the blog? Yeah, so you can find me um, at lauraroder.com if you just type in some spelling of my name in Google. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll find me, but it's R-O-E-D-E-R. So yeah, I blog at Laura Roder. We didn't talk about my business now, but my business now is called Paperbell at paperbell.com uh, or you can find me on Twitter at LKR. Awesome. And meetedgar.com is the yes. name of the business that you sold and continues to operate under Sure Swift's leadership. Yep. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that. We'll put all that in the show notes at builtcell.com. Laura, thank you for doing this. Thank you. And there you have it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Laura Roeder. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with the definitions for some of the more technical terms referenced, you can go ahead and visit the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, then you can actually nominate them over at builttosell.com slash nominate where there you're going to have the chance to either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on built to sell radio and lastly if you're a fan of the show and want to support this podcast and you can head over to apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review it's super helpful in helping new listeners find the podcast Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor today or to learn how to become one yourself, visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.